Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, there was a few times even during worship that uh, I noticed Nathaniel backed out, and it was uh, beautiful to hear you guys worship and to hear you guys declare the worthiness of our King. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you guys will turn there. Um, and as you turn there, I want to at least remind you guys of a couple things. One, uh, we announced both of these things earlier this morning, but I want to remind you guys at 9.30 every Sunday morning, uh, we have an elective going on, kind of an interactive teaching setting, kind of like a small group in which we're going, kind of going through the, God's storyline from, from Genesis to Revelation, kind of what's the storyline that connects the entirety of the Bible. If you've ever opened the Old Testament and thought you were just lost, this is the uh, elective for you. Uh, we're actually right now, right in the middle of one of the sweetest and richest parts of that elective series as we kind of run through the Gospels and begin to unpack what looks familiar, but is going to sound really unfamiliar as we really connect, connect it to the Old Testament. And so if you, if you wonder, in a sense, how your Bible fits together, that's a great elective. I would highly encourage you guys to consider it. If you've been missing it this whole semester, it's not too late to jump in. We kind of review every Sunday morning. would love for you to consider that. Again, that's 930, actually right here, right behind where you guys are sitting, we have that every single Sunday morning and we'll have it for the next three or four weeks. We'd love for you guys to be a part of that. Also this morning, we're going to have a, a little lunch action after the service. And so we'd love for you to guys stick around after the service for that. And we'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the sermon this morning, but Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we started off, but I'm going to read a little bit further for you guys this morning. We're going to be Hebrews chapter uh, 12 verses one to 11 this morning. Uh, but beginning in verse one, the writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. You pray with me. Father God, I give you great thanks uh, for your revelation. I thank you that you've left us not without witness, um, that you've declared who you are. Uh, you've declared even who we are and you've declared in the way in which you're moving to save us. Um, Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word afresh, Lord, I pray that you'd give us fresh eyes to see it, uh, fresh ears to hear it. Um, Father, I pray that you would uh, topple in our lives even the false idols and the ways that we've constructed or made you to be. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd reveal even a fresh way to us this morning as to who you are, not who we want you to be, um, not who we claim you to be, but who you are and who you've claimed to be. Uh, Father, I pray this morning, even in the midst of whatever it is and from wherever it is that we've walked in here this morning, um, whatever our week has been like, and even whatever our night was like last night, Lord, I pray that you would meet us, uh, that you would connect with us deeply this morning. I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd move me out of the way, and that you'd use this time however you see fit, that you'd give us hearts that are responsive to you, and that you'd speak, and that you'd move, um, that you'd do more than we could imagine. Um, Father, I pray that you really would address some things in our lives in a fresh way, and that your voice would be heard this morning. Uh, through this time, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, some of you guys may have known this, but a few years ago, uh, my wife Marcy ran a, a full 26-mile marathon in East Asia. Uh, I'll tell you guys, it was one of her life goals, uh, and I probably, during that day, was probably never more proud of her than I was in that day. Um, I also was never more ashamed personally than I was that day. Um, as she was slaving over 26 miles, and as she had trained for months, as I sat there that day, I, throughout the day, I, I took taxis, and I met her at different parts of the marathon, all right? And I provided her water, and I provided her bananas, 
says, I provided her or took from her whatever it is that she needed or wanted or wanted to get from me or give away to me. I was there for her, whatever she needed as he walked through that marathon. Now, uh, as surprising as it may seem, I really wasn't all that embarrassed by the fact that she was accomplishing something absolutely physically unbelievable to me while I was absolutely lazy taking taxis all around town, all right? I really wasn't that embarrassed by that. I actually also wasn't that embarrassed by the fact that it was a cold morning uh, when this marathon began and she began with a headband around her, her head that was covering her ears. But at the first uh, marker that I met her about six miles into it, I also really wasn't that embarrassed by the fact that while I gave her juice and bananas, I asked for her headband because my ears were really cold, all right? I figured her, her blood was pumping by that time. Surely she was warm and, and that headband actually was quite girly. And so I stood there for about six hours that day with a girly looking headband on my ears, but I didn't want cold ears, all right? I also really wasn't that embarrassed by the fact that for the next six hours, I really began thinking and kicking myself that I, I didn't bring a chair. <laughs> I, just, I was standing there for six hours and thought, why didn't I bring a chair, all right? I really wasn't embarrassed by that either. I also wasn't embarrassed by the fact that when the marathon was over and we were on our way home and my sweet wife, whose legs at this point could barely move and barely even walk, I, I really wasn't that embarrassed by the fact that I was talking to her about the fact that I've been standing for six hours and really could use a foot massage, all right? Uh, not for her, but at least in East Asia, there were foot massage places that were amazing, all right? And all of that, I really wasn't that embarrassed, all right? But really what embarrassed me that morning and really what stung me and what I didn't anticipate was that for for those six hours of that marathon, what I did not anticipate was who I was going to be standing with all day long. And in particular, who I was going to be talking with all day. In particular, who was going to be with me in the audience for this marathon. What I didn't anticipate and what I didn't foresee was that for six hours that day, even though I was taking taxis and even though I was wearing girly headbands, for six hours that day, I was going to be standing alongside of and talking for six hours with all kinds of girlfriends, moms, wives, and sisters who were supporting their men in the marathon, all right? It wasn't a chauvinist, sexist thing, but I I realized that over the course of those six hours, I could probably count on my two hands the number of men I saw with me in the stands and in the audience that day, all right? And one of those guys was a dude who came with me the latter part of the race just to talk with me and hang out with me, all right? Uh, But literally on two hands could I count the number of men in the audience, all right? And so much was was the audience so stunning to me that that stunning audience in many ways had more of an impact on wanting me and motivating me to think about jumping into the marathon myself, all right? I just felt so shamed and so motivated and even so stunned by the audience. Uh, Really, as we get into Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, really what the writer of Hebrews is going to do for you and I is connect our spiritual life to a marathon, much like a lot of us have participated in or attended, all right? He's going to connect our spiritual life very much to a marathon or a race. Not a race that's a sprint, that's a short-term race, but a marathon that's long, enduring, and that's grueling. And in particular, he's going to do three things that's going to surprise us, I think, about the marathon that you and I are running. One, even to kind of set it up, as I did in my intro this morning, that this we're going to find that our marathon has a stunning audience, all right? Not just that it has a stunning audience, but we're going to find it has a suffering pace setter. And then lastly, we're going to find it has a grueling pathway. That the marathon that you and I are running has a stunning audience. It has a suffering pace setter. And then lastly, we're going to see later on this morning that it has a grueling pathway. The marathon that is our spiritual life. And really the writer of Hebrews really starts us off in verse one, talking about that race. We've been reading it already this morning, but let me read it again. Chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice verse one, the writer of Hebrews is saying that for you and I, there's a race that is set before us, not a short term sprint that you can gut it out for about five minutes and then you're good, though you're winded. But this is a agonizing marathon that you and I are running. It's a long term race. 
In fact, it's the race that is set before us. It's our race that we're running. But what the writer of Hebrews does in, in a fascinating pivot and turn as we move from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is he goes on to talk about the audiences and attending our race. And then he says, since therefore we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In many regards, he's going to paint the picture that chapter 11, all those great heroes of faith that we looked at before spring break and after spring break, as we were marveling at them, as we struggled sometimes to even identify with them, as we learned from them, what he's going to say as he transitions from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is that that great hall of fame of faith, all those great heroes of faith, that in some regards, as he kind of paints the picture and moves the analogy to talk about our spiritual life, all those great heroes are in attendance to our race. They're all in the stands looking on as we run the race that is set before us. In many regards, I've heard chapter 11 portrayed or talked about as a great hall of fame of faith. It's like we're walking through a museum or an art museum in which we're looking at these great heroes, seeing pictures of their greatest moments. And we look at them and we go, man, that's amazing. 2,000 years ago that this guy did that or 4,000 years ago that this guy did that. I can't even identify with him. Like I can't even explain a piece of art in an art museum, all right? But what the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 chapter 11 isn't a great museum for you. Chapter 11, as I detailed the stories of all these men and women, it is that for you to understand exactly who's looking on as you run the race. Chapter 11 is not a museum. It is a roll call of those in attendance who are looking and watching you and I as we run our race. And therefore, it becomes quite motivating and quite inspiring. As I stood in in a stunning audience watching Marcy run a marathon, it provoked me and inspired me to begin to think about running my own race and jumping in, all right? A lot of things that didn't do that, but it was the audience that did that for me. I've often thought in many Aggie games that I've attended at Kyle Field, I've often thought, how amazing would it be to run out as the Aggies do uh, for the beginning of a game and have all these hordes of people cheering and screaming and and going crazy for you? How, How jacked up, how motivated would you be? that's not so stunning, but I think what's really stunning and why I think chapter 11 as it transitions into 12 is a bit stunning is because all those great heroes are not in a museum, but they're in some sense attending and watching you and I as we run our race. And therefore we're to be motivated, we're to be inspired, not just by those who are in attendance, but also for another reason. It's not just that you and I have a stunning audience, but we also have a suffering pace setter. You and I are motivated and inspired in running our race, not just because of those who are watching us, but because of particular because of one who's out in front of us. Notice he says in verses two and three, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is our pace setter. He is the one who's out in front of us. And he identifies Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author, he is the captain. He is the pioneer of our faith. He is the one who's not just created and called us to faith, but he's the one who's pioneered the path that you and I are running. He's the one who's already led out in front of us before. And so now he's coming and he's, and he's moving us forward, but it's a race he's already run. And in fact, he's not just pioneered and, and blazed this trail, so to speak, but he's also the one who's going to bring us to the destination. So he's the perfecter of our faith. He's not just the pioneer who's gone out in front of us, but in his going out in front of us, as he moves us and calls us to follow, he's also going to arrive us at our destination. He's going to help us finish our race. I watched Marcy as she ran a marathon, even though I stopped at several different spots. We actually invited some other friends that joined her in the last seven to 10 miles of the marathon. And I'll tell you, apart from those people who joined her, there's probably no way that she finishes that marathon. But it was having some people who were right beside her and out in front of her who were continuing to motivate her to continue to press forward, to continue to run. And there were people who, though, who had not run the race prior. There were people who hadn't even trained prior. And yet what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying is that you and I have one who's out in front of us, one who's already run the race, and one who's not just a pioneer for us, but he's also one who's an enabler so that you and I can finish this race well. 
And notice really though, in particular, the kind of pace that he sets. Notice what he's already done on our behalf. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him entered the cross, despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The, the description of the pace that he set is one of suffering. Uh, in particular, as the writer of Hebrews talks about the race that we're running, he uses a, a, a Greek word that denotes agony and that denotes suffering. All right. Uh, the, re- the reality of why I think this is a marathon is because it, it is the closest athletic competition that denotes and, and describes and, and identifies and illustrates the kind of grueling and difficulty that you and I endure as we walk with Jesus Christ for a lifetime. It's not an effortless race. <laughs> it's not an effortless process. It's one that requires great discipline, great struggle, at times great agony. And as we walk with Jesus Christ and, and as we watch marathons at times, one of the things I've noticed even about a marathon is that uh, there often is, there's no stereotype for the kind of person that finishes a marathon. There's all kinds of stereotypes for the kind of people that win marathons. Those first people that cross the marathon finish line. But in terms of the kinds of people that finish it, all different kinds of people finish marathons. I've seen old people. I've seen young people. I've seen men. I've seen women. I've seen all different kinds of ethnicities. I've seen all different kinds of people who have had training or not training. I've seen all different kinds of people who have talent or absolutely no talent. And you begin thinking, how are they going to finish five miles? And yet somehow they finish 26 miles. There's no stereotype for the kind of person who finishes a marathon. They don't have a look about them. They don't have a certain set of qualities about them. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews goes on further, as we kind of move further, he's going to talk about the grueling pathway for a marathon, what a marathon runner has to do and and the path that they take in order to finish. And what we're going to find is that there's no stereotype for those people who finish, but there is a couple things they do that often really determine whether you are the kind of person that finishes or not. There's two different kinds of things that we see about the kinds of people who finish marathons and the kinds of people who don't. The first thing the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, I think, is that those who finish races are those that eliminate excess. All right. He says it like this in verses two and three. He says, let us lay or verse one, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. It says in order for you and I to run and to finish the race, you and I have to be the kind of people that lay aside encumbrances and lay aside sin. One of the things that I noted, even uh, as a bunch of people uh, showed up for a marathon that we were, uh, that Marcy was a part of like in October or November in East Asia, it was a cold, really cold morning. And yet as these people showed up for this marathon, I was stunned by the fact that they were wearing absolutely almost nothing. All right. Skippy shorts, uh, tank top. And I was thinking, how in the world are they going to make it? I was freezing cold in a jacket and I was looking for my wife's earmuffs. All right. And these people were running in basically nothing. Not only were they wearing very little, but they were going to carry very little else also too. I thought 26 miles. I think I'd want a backpack with juice bars. I want to be packing my socks with stuff. And yet these people had absolutely nothing on them. They're going to pick stuff up along the way, but they realized they couldn't carry extra burdens if they were going to finish the race. And not just if they were going to carry stuff during the race, but even in their training, even their training was all about eliminating excess. All right. Uh, Whether it was excess in their diet, whether it was excess in their lifestyle, they had to cut back a lot of things in their lives in order to be the kinds of people that could compete and finish a marathon. I think for you and I, I think we do this in our lives. You and I are not the kinds of people that naturally eliminate excess, all right? Uh, This past week, I got a a brand new laptop bag. I was pretty excited about it, stoked about it. So I began to transfer all my old stuff from my old laptop bag into my new laptop bag. And I noticed that over the last three years, four or five years, as I've had this laptop bag, I've accumulated and kept all kinds of manner of old granola bars, 
old gum, all right, old pens, old stuff that doesn't even work that relate to laptops, old mouses. I mean, I just had all kinds of stuff in here, all right? And it was no wonder it was so crazily heavy as I was carrying it. And all of a sudden, my new laptop bag feels like it's just a, a, a feather because I had started to carry all this extra stuff I didn't need. I wasn't even using and I think I do it in laptop bags. We do it in our lives. And the marathon runners are going to say that you've got to eliminate all that excess in your life if you're going to compete and if you're going to finish. The writer of Hebrews is going to talk about two different things in verse one. He's going to say that you and I have to lay aside every encumbrance. Particularly there, I think the idea is amoral distractions. Things that are not necessarily moral or right or wrong. And he's going to say that you and I have to lay aside anything that would encumber, hinder, or distract us from the focus goal that you and I have, which is a race that we need to finish. He's going to say, in order to finish that race, you and I have to remove anything that would be a distraction, anything that would limit us from finishing well. Not just amoral distractions, but even any kind of moral deviation. He's going to say, not just that we'd lay aside every encumbrance, but that we'd lay aside every sin that so easily entangles. It's quite easy for distractions and moral deviations to begin to hinder and impair the way that you and I run this race. If marathon runners barely wear anything and very much carry very little, then you and I cannot take a bunch of spiritual baggage with us as we run this race. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, you and I have to be really pinpoint focused on the kinds of distractions that we let in our lives. We have to be narrowly focused on the call God has for us. And also the kinds of sins that we allow in our lives that we think that won't hamper us or we think that we can control. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, over the long term, that thing is going to steal your life. It's going to strangle you and it's going to prevent you from finishing the race that God has for you. I realized for me, there's a lot of sin patterns that developed for me in junior high and high school. A lot of the things I didn't actually realize how dangerous they were until I got to college. And college really began the place that God began to move and to speak and to identify those things and then begin to help me learn to, to unroot them from my life. I think this phase of life for you as you're on your own, as you're walking with the Lord, as you're in a phase of life that's as busy as it seems for you, it's really not that busy, all right? Uh, You have time, you have space, you have opportunity with all kinds of support around you, with all kinds of spiritual inputs in your life uh, to begin to identify and to root sin out. Sin will kill you. It will destroy you and it will prevent you from finishing the race God has for you. We think we can manage it. We think we can kind of keep a hold on it. But over the long term, it's going to grow and grow and grow and eventually strangle us and take our life away. Sin is dangerous and sin is going to prevent you and I from finishing the race. And so the writer of Hebrews says, get rid of it. Lay it aside. The idea was of, of, a, of a cloak that had dropped down all the way to the, the pant legs and to the ankles and that prevented someone from running well. And so the writer of Hebrews says, whether it's distractions or whether it's sin, you've got to get those things away so that you can run freely and that it doesn't entangle and it doesn't trip you up. The writer of Hebrews goes even further, though, and what I think he's going to do next, and really where the bulk of the passage actually spends some time on, is that that, that in order to finish the race, what's most important is not necessarily what you and I exclude. What's most important for you and I is that we finish the race as we walk with Jesus Christ. It is not necessarily what we exclude, but it's what we allow God to include. And let me say that again. I think for a lot of us, we often think the Christian life is about not doing this, not doing that. The Christian life is not primarily about what you and I exclude, but it's about what we allow God to include. What he's going to do next, he's going to talk about this role of discipline. And he says, verse four, he says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lay aside encumbrances and sin. But he says, you've not gone far enough in eliminating excess because there's a bigger reason and something that's more significant that's preventing you from moving forward. And what he's going to say is that verse five, and you've forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
says primarily the reason why they've stopped short in dealing with sin, the reason why their spiritual race is in jeopardy of being disqualified is not because they haven't yet gone far enough in eliminating the excess in their life, but, but primarily they're having a problem wrestling with what God has included and allowed in their life. He's going to talk primarily in verses five and on about the concept of discipline. But I think even in that, it's not going to be just this idea of God's discipline or rebuke of us, but even more expansive and wider to the idea even of just suffering and difficulty. I think as he talks in verses four to 11 about discipline, it's not just a fatherly rebuke of a wayward son, but it's also primarily about the inclusion of difficulty in our life. Keep in mind, he's going to say that they've not yet come to the point of resisting and shedding blood. And the implication is they're going to be about to have to do that. The writer of Hebrews is saying that all the difficulties in their life, it's not just because they've not dealt with sin. (laughs) The difficulties in their life isn't necessarily because there's something wrong with the way that they're walking with Christ. They're under great pressure and the pressure isn't necessarily because they've done anything wrong. But if they don't yield, if they yield to that pressure and if they fall short, then discipline will come. And so he's going to talk about really the role of discipline and the role of difficulties in our life. And, and our willingness to include them as God uses them in our life is absolutely critical if you and I are going to finish the race well. So that's why he says, don't faint when you are reproved by him. <laughs> he says, don't be so absolutely shocked and taken off guard when difficulty or even the discipline of God comes in your life. Don't be surprised by it. Uh, in First Peter, he'll talk about, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. As if some strange thing is happening to you. Difficulty and suffering are par for the course for the Christian life. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you've been invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ and, and we'll do that again this morning, I'll tell you that walking with Jesus Christ and entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ is not a life free from difficulty. It is not a life of peaches and ice cream and bananas and flowers and roses. And I don't know why I picked those things, all right? But it is not all easy, all right? If anything, I think the Christian life is actually quite harder in some measures than not knowing Jesus Christ. That walking with Jesus Christ is incredibly hard. And that as we walk with Jesus Christ, as we endure an agonizing, in some ways, marathon, walking with him, waiting eventually for us to be in his presence, as we walk that course out, what we're going to find is that he uses difficulties and he uses discipline along the way. And in particular, what we're going to find is that the inclusion of those things is absolutely vital for you and I to finish this race. He says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. Discipline is all about how you and I endure. And God is going to use difficulties and he's going to use his own rebukes in our lives to keep us on course and to keep us pointing in the right direction as we walk with him. In fact, though, I think for a lot of us, the reason why we struggle, though, with discipline and difficulty is that uh, for many of us, we're not really sure why we're encountering it, right? Why am I encountering difficulties? Why have I landed in a difficult spot? Why am I encountering even the discipline of the Lord? Why am I getting rebukes? And why am I being challenged on things? Why does God do that? And what kind of God would do that? Why does God do that? And what kind of God would do that? What kind of God, what kind of pace setter would lead us along a path that's going to include discipline and difficulty? I want to answer the why and then I'm going to answer the who because both the why and their who are being asked about and even written about all the time, right? Why? Why does God allow discipline and why does he allow difficulty? I think he gives us the answer in verses 9 to 11. Look with me. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For these earthly fathers discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What's the point of suffering? What's the point of difficulty? What's the point of discipline? 
And then God always uses that to train us. And in that training along the way, he's, he's actually maintaining, he's building things in our lives so that we can actually finish the race. The very things that seem like they'll jeopardize and threaten us from even wanting to stay on path to Jesus Christ are the very things that are required for us to continue to walk with him and continue to know him. I think that he uses difficulties and he even uses discipline in order to train us. And as he trains us through those things, he's trying to do two things and he wants to accomplish two things in our lives. One is he wants to grow us in holiness. And the second thing is he wants to build and produce in us the fruit of righteousness. And he says it both times. He says in verse 11, all discipline doesn't feel joyful in the moment, but it's sorrowful. And yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That it is through difficulties and it's through discipline that he allows along our path that he's growing us and he's training us and he's shaping us. That's the why. But, but what does it mean about the who? <laughs> what kind of God would allow difficulties and discipline to be part of the measuring stick and part of the training process to grow us in holiness and to grow us in righteousness? What kind of God does that? I'll give you guys an illustration this morning. I was thinking, uh, I was, before I got ready this morning, I, I, I sat down and I was on the ground and, and our little girl, Caroline, is, who's now almost 18 months, brought me a couple of books that she wanted me to read to her. Uh, normally she brings me a bunch of kids' books with all kinds of fun, colorful pictures and often with all kinds of animals, all right? Uh, but this morning, for whatever reason, she brought me uh, Charles Ryrie's Survey of Bible Doctrine, all right? Um, so Sunday morning, you know, Pastor Dad is getting ready and she brings me survey of Bible doctrine. I thought, great, awesome. Let's read this thing, right? We start reading through it. And actually I'm thinking there's no way she's going to pay attention. So I actually start actually trying to grab some kids books with pictures and animals in it. All right. And so I actually start trying to take the Bible doctrine book away and interject a uh, kid's book, at which point she actually throws a kid's book away and she keeps trying to go back to Bible doctrine, which finally I, I gave up and we just started reading. All right. Now I'll tell you guys in that moment, I thought, Man, this kid is amazing, right? Um, I'll tell you guys, even later on, even after lunch, as she hangs out with us, she's probably going to entertain you. She's going to smile. She's going to put her best colors forward because she likes to be the center of attention and she likes to make people happy, all right? She can get you laughing. She feels great. But the moment that we leave and it's just Marcy and I, we don't always get to see her best side, all right? Uh, she doesn't always seem so inclined to entertain us. And so we've begun to see quite a lot of qualities that we've realized we've got to discipline that we've got to train out of her, okay? Uh, and so discipline, even for a parent, never feels fun or good, all right? But discipline by its very presence is always a sign of our love, okay? And the reason we discipline her, the reason we train her is because we love her. If I didn't love her, I would probably choose the easier path, which is just let her do whatever she wants and let her be a diva, okay? Um, which sometimes it feels like we're raising, but we know it's not. That's not what we want, all right? We want to train her in righteousness. We want to train her in holiness. We want to build character in her. And in order to do that, we've got to discipline her. In fact, I'm not going to protect her to the extent that I won't even allow difficulties in her life because I realize that difficulties and discipline train her and grow her. And the, and the presence of those things in her life show that I'm actually a loving father. And what we're going to find in the writer of Hebrews is going to make the point is the kind of God that would use difficulties and discipline to train and grow you and I is the kind of God who's actually loving. Notice the way he says it in verses six and eight. He says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Notice, what does the presence of discipline denote? The presence of discipline denotes love. The absence of discipline denotes what? The writer of Hebrews says that the absence of God's discipline denotes that you are an illegitimate child. There's two possibilities for what the writer of Hebrews could be meaning by that. It could be meaning that you are a son, but a son without an heir. 
without an inheritance. We've been talking throughout the book of Hebrews that part of what the writer of Hebrews continues to call his audience to is that if they will endure, if they will walk righteously, they'll receive an inheritance that's in addition to heaven. That's in addition to what they've received unconditionally as a free gift. And what the writer of Hebrews may be saying is that if you don't choose to respond appropriately to the discipline of God, or it's absent in your life, then you may be the kind of child who does not have inheritance with that father at all. It's not that you're not a child, but that you don't have the kind of inheritance that a child who obeys does. Or you may be saying that the absence of the father's discipline means that you're not a child at all. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are an illegitimate child. You are a child who's not yet been brought under the refuge of God the Father and yet also been included in terms of his inheritance. What the writer of Hebrews, I think, is saying is that that the presence of discipline is a sign and it is a marker that you and I are children with inheritance, all right? And that that presence of discipline in our lives, the presence even sometimes of difficulty in our lives, does not call into question God's goodness or his love, but it is actually a barometer. It is a sign for it. It is evidence for his love. And yet I think throughout our lives and throughout centuries, I think the church culture has wrestled greatly with what kind of God would allow difficulty and even discipline in our lives. Uh, The greatest question I think that that wrestled with the church for centuries was what kind of God would allow suffering in the world, right? Either God is good or God is powerful, but he cannot be good and powerful and allow suffering. Because if he allows suffering, then maybe he's not powerful enough to stop it. Or if he allows suffering, he's not good enough to care about it. What kind of God would allow that in our lives? I think even as we look through the scriptures, we see that God is completely powerful and that he is completely good. And the presence of suffering does not necessarily remove or call in question either of those. And yet it creates a tension in our lives that all of us feel that none of us can answer completely. In fact, I think often for some of us, I think it is in those moments, even as our culture and as our world asks those questions and we don't have perfect answers that remove the tension. But I think a lot of times and a lot of even pastors and theologians and authors move in directions to answer and remove the tension that lands them in a place that is not Christian. It happened even 200 years ago in the early 1800s. A guy named Frederick Slyermarker was a uh, well-meaning pastor. Uh, He was a well-meaning guy who really wanted to engage the culture and he wanted to allow the world to know Jesus Christ and his goodness and his power and his forgiveness. And he was wrestling in a day and time which the culture was asking, how can God allow suffering in the world? How could a God be good and powerful and yet allow suffering? And Slyermacher's response led forth a revolution that impacted the church for centuries and has still impacted our church today and churches today like it. What he did was he led forth and he answered the culture's criticism by saying this, That ultimately Christianity is not about doctrine, it's not about a Bible, but it's about an experience and a relationship with God. That ultimately the the, the foundational marker of what Christianity is all about, according to Slyermarker, was not the Bible. It was not doctrine, it was not truth, but it was about an experience and maybe even a relationship with God. Have you heard that language before? The reality of what happened, though, as well-meaning as he was, is he removed the tension of the argument, but where he landed Christianity was a place that was, if anything, not Christian. By the time that Schleiermacher and, and the movement that he began uh, got done, basically they had gutted Christianity from the gospel. They gutted God from an all-powerful judging God. They gutted salvation and they gutted what man was and what man needed. By the time that Schleiermacher was done in answering culture's question, he had gutted Christianity from all that was transforming and life-giving. And he had changed the gospel and he changed the good news completely. I think you and I today still struggle with answering those difficult kinds of questions. Some of you guys may have even been aware, even this week a book was released by a guy named Rob Bell who's wrestling with the same tension. 
and I want to address it real quick with you guys and be uh, pretty blunt and clear. I think Rob Bell is wrestling with the same tension. Uh, not in the same kind of way Slyermarker did, and, and actually not in the exact kind of way that the writer of Hebrews is. Uh, I think the writer of Hebrews, and, and particularly Schleiermacher, were wrestling with how can you allow for God to be good and to be loving when he disciplines and allows suffering in the present? The question that Rob Bell is asking is this one. How can God be good and loving if he allows suffering and judgment eternally forever in the afterlife? How can you allow a God to be good if he's going to punish sin forever in eternity? A question and an issue that, sure, I have attention and is hard to talk about. We don't talk about hell at times because it's not a popular nor a really fuzzy, feel-good, Hallmark card kind of discussion, right? And yet, here's what Bell does. Here's what he says. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it is in essence to reject Jesus. This is misguided, toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Bell hits a tension that you and I all feel. (laughs) The tension is this. How could God be good and loving and yet judge sin and judge sin eternally? (laughs) That question is hard to swallow, especially if the answer I think as the scriptures are saying is that he judges sin eternally for those that don't accept the free gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And so Bell says that uh, for the last 2000 years, the church has taken a story of Jesus and hijacked it, a story that Jesus didn't want to tell and a story that is really subverting the message and the love of Jesus. Question is, is it? Bell is, is wrestling and, he, and he's struggling with the idea of how could God be good and loving and yet judge sin now or judge sin in the future? Can God be a God of judgment but also be good? A question we've been wrestling with for a long, long time. Notice though where Bell will go and notice the story Bell is going to want to tell. Here's what Bell says about 100 pages later in his book, his book entitled Love Wins. He says this, telling a story in which billions of people spend forever somewhere in the universe trapped in a black hole of endless torment and misery with no way out isn't a very good story. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> it is not a, a fun, feel-good story, right? Uh, and so he says further, telling a story about a God who inflicts unrelenting punishment on people because they didn't do or say or believe the correct things in a brief window of time called life isn't a very good story. So what's the story Bell wants to tell? Bell is not asking questions just to start a conversation. He's asking questions and he's got answers for those questions. And here's where he goes. In contrast, everybody enjoying God's good world together with no disgrace or shame, justice being served and all the wrongs being made right is a better story. It is a bigger, more loving, more expansive, more extraordinary, beautiful, inspiring than any other story about the ultimate course history takes. And particularly the story that Bell is going to talk about in his book, Love Wins, is this. Uh, that for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins by his death on a cross in this lifetime, when we die, that we'll spend eternity in heaven, we'll go directly into God's presence. But for according to Bell, for those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, when they die, they're going to go uh, into a hell that they've created and they're going to have every opportunity to change their mind and choose Jesus. And eventually all will choose Jesus because the love of Jesus will win them over. The reality is Bell is going to remove the tension of a story that's really hard to tell. The question is, has he created a different story than the scriptures are telling us? 
And I would argue with you guys as you read that book and as you were maybe talking about it even this week, that in order for Bell to get to that story, he's going to completely change all of church history and he's going to completely distort horrendously the scriptures. <laughs> he's not going to handle the scriptures. And in particular, he's going to create a God that's much easier to market and be a PR spokesperson for than he is, I think, the God that we see through the scriptures. <laughs> the God that we see through the scriptures, frankly, is not the God I would like to talk about. He's not the God I would like to tell you about, but he is the God that is. He's the God that creates all kinds of tension in our lives and a God that is at times difficult and frankly, a God that offends at times. He's a God that has told you and I that we are absolutely in need of a savior because we are horrendously sinful and hostile to him. And apart from his gracious good work, apart from what he did on a cross, there is no means to be reconciled to that God. And apart from being reconciled to that God, even in the present life, we will find no joy, no satisfaction, no fullness and abundance of life as he's called us to and as he's created us to experience. And apart from him, we'll we'll chase all through life for things that will not satisfy and things that will actually enslave us. And it's not just in the present that we're going to miss out. The scriptures are going to be clear that if we've not trusted in Jesus Christ, we stand condemned. We stand condemned and we will, after life, after we die, we'll go into a place eternally separate from him. A place that devoid of his presence is eternal torment. We don't talk about it a lot because it's not that fun to hear. But it is the story the scriptures are telling. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no refuge. There is no escape from that wrath. And it's not just that that wrath and that difficulty comes in the afterlife, but even in the present, we wrestle with it as well, right? For even those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have confidence that we're going to spend eternity in heaven with him. Even for us in the midst of the present, even though we know we're going to spend eternity with him, we struggle when difficulty and even discipline comes in our life. And the question is, how do we respond to it? How do you and I respond when difficulty comes? Difficulty was coming and coming even greater for the church that the writer of Hebrews was writing to. And he's going to say, endure. (laughs) Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ because he's endured everything that you could endure. And he's not only pioneered and blazed the trail in front of you, but he's gone all the way to the cross where he died on your behalf. And if you want to see love win, if you want to see the fullness of Jesus Christ's love, you don't look in the afterlife, you look at the cross where he shed his blood on our behalf and where he took the penalty and stood in the place where we don't have to stand anymore because he stood in the gap. And he took the judgment, he took the condemnation, he took the wrath that was ours upon himself and we have a substitute who stands on our behalf. And the story Bella is going to tell is a story that's going to depart from that and is going to rob Jesus Christ of the death that he died and the power and the love that it communicates as we walk with Jesus Christ. He paid the debt for us so that we could have confidence that we're going to spend all of eternity with him. And the life that we live now has accountability to him in the future. And the life that we live now, we're called to finish and to finish well. And the question I want to ask you this morning is a couple of things. One is, what are the distractions and what are the sins in your life that you know are going to hinder you and hamper you? I want to challenge you even this afternoon, even this week to begin to allow the Lord to have an opportunity to examine you and, and, and to, to tinker and to step in and say, hey, this thing right here, this is going to choke life with me. This thing right here has got to go. Otherwise, we're not going to continue to be able to progress further and you're not going to be able to experience all that I have for you. Or as you encounter difficulties, as you encounter even correction and rebuke, the challenge I want to give you is to trust that God is good and that he's loving and even in the midst of that. And that he's good and that he cares for you, that even in that and through that, its presence in your life is a sign and an evidence of his goodness and of his love. And even as you struggle and even as you wrestle with how could a good and loving God allow difficulty and allow discipline in your life, don't punt him away. Don't make him what he's not. 
Don't refashion him in a way that sounds better to our world and sounds better even to us and the tensions we feel because what you and I have done when we move in that direction is we've created an idol. We've created a God that is not and a God that we can control and a God that we like and a God that we can market. (laughs) And God, as we see through the scriptures, is a God that doesn't market very well at times. (laughs) He's a God of judgment. He's a God of discipline. He's a God of wrath. And yet in his love, we find through Jesus Christ, we have a shelter from that wrath. We have a shelter from that judgment. And in Jesus Christ, we find the only way to find that shelter. So if you're here this morning, let me challenge you. Let me plead with you to consider Jesus. (laughs) If you don't have a relationship with him, if you've not yet entered in, if you've not yet sought refuge underneath that shelter, let me challenge you to consider him who died on your behalf. And if you have entered that place, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, let me encourage and plead with you as well to consider Jesus, to keep your eyes set on Jesus, who has pioneered and blazed the trail for you. A trail that will include and that he's already gone through all kinds of discipline and all kinds of difficulty. And yet as we keep our eyes set on him, he's transforming us, he's changing us, and he's going to arrive us at the finish line with a fullness of joy and a fullness of satisfaction that we'll find nowhere else. No other path offers that, even though this path at times can be challenging and grueling. I feel like what we do every week and what we've been doing all semester and all year through the book of Hebrews is calling you to continue to walk with Jesus Christ. Hang in. It's worth it. It's worth it now and it's worth it later. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks. Um, But you are a God that we cannot get our hands around at times. I thank you that you are a God that we don't always understand. I thank you that you're also a God that has spoken and revealed yourself through the word. And so that we can see you not as we would want to see you and not even as we would want to make you, but we see you as you are. I thank you that in Jesus Christ, we see that you are loving and yet you are also judging and that you are also holy and that you needed a sacrifice for sin because you are holy. And that in your holiness, we then see the greatness of your love, that you would go to the greatest extent that you would send your only son so that we could find life now and even in the future. Father, I pray for us this morning, Lord, that you would give us courage to to, uh, examine our lives, that you would speak, that you would reveal those things that are distractions and their sin. Father, I pray that you would call us forward. I pray that you would give us hope, that you would give us confidence, that you would give us a a greatness of confidence in your goodness and in your love. And that even though our circumstances are crying that you're not good at times, or even though our circumstances may be crying that you're absent, Father, I pray that you would remind us that you're present. And that you're present even in our difficulties just where you were on the cross at Golgotha. Identifying with us in sin. Identifying with us in difficulty. And and taking upon yourself the payment for our sin. And identifying with us to show us that there is victory over these things. Father, I pray that you'd give us that confidence. And not just a victory to come in the future, but even a victory to present today. That we can find victory from the things that are grabbing us. We can find victory from the circumstances that seem to be closing in around us, Lord. Pray that you'd give us great confidence as we watch and as we look to you, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.